Hello, welcome back to the Reverend Gentleman Podcast. Today we're going to be talking about concepts of building a team, running a team, or any other grouping of individuals, and how that applies to, as an example, being a dungeon master within the game Dungeons and Dragons. So there are a few things we always have to remember is that human individuals are sometimes self-directing in that they do not conform to uh, very strict lines of thought all the time. Yes, we have concepts and other things, but there is a problem when you try to manage other individuals because they are their own individual. They start to develop their own idiosyncrasies. They start to do things uh, their way, and they usually get results. So as a DM, I have to because I do DM several games, actually. I have to moderate how people are interacting with each other and how they interact with the world. In doing this, I have to not have a very structured plan. My, my preferred method of doing a campaign is I have a general idea, and then I flesh out the world to an extent that it's, it's got history, it has different societies, it has all these important things that people will be able to interact with, but I don't have a story that's set in stone. The reason being is that there's a phenomenon that players absolutely hate. It's called railroading into the story. So as most people know, trains are set on tracks. They follow a very linear path and they have very little uh, ways off and on. Everything is strictly controlled. And that doesn't really make a good story with Dungeons and Dragons, because at its core, Dungeons and Dragons is creative storytelling and creative problem solving with a group of associates and someone who's running it. If you put too much effort into trying to control the individuals and how they portray their characters, how they generally operate, you're going to start to take the fun out of it. It starts to become a chore to play the game. Now, I have actually a couple of examples. One of, uh, our, in the longest running campaign that I have, that I actually play in, uh, we had an elven ranger. And the, the player himself, he was rather apathetic. He loved combat. He absolutely would only really come alive when combat was taking place and he was extremely visual he had trouble doing theater of the mind which was most of the stuff that we were doing with uh, a few crude drawings in the application that we were using and when he wasn't in combat and he wasn't fully engaged he would start to not pay attention and that started to lead to a lot of problems, especially within the party, because there was one or two people who were driving the story, since our dungeon master is mostly a story DM and not necessarily one focusing on combat. He would mainly put us into things, okay, here's a, here's a puzzle that you have to solve. Here's a mystery you have to follow. Here's information that you need to gather. And with this particular ranger... He wouldn't really foot he really wouldn't put much effort into anything other than combat. And that was a problem because it was either my character or maybe one or two other characters who were half-heartedly. My character was dragging everyone else along on an adventure in the beginning stages of this campaign. And at first, the the Ranger was pretty decent he acted out his character he he role-played but he really didn't like role-playing and 
if you expect someone to be a role player and they're not, that's that's going to be a problem. So you have to know the players at the table. We have two to three role players, and the main problem that we had in that first part of the campaign was motivation. The reason why my character was pulling the campaign along because he had motivation. He's he was a paladin. He was trying to. Uh, save the world from evil and eventually banish it from the realm and that well that's big and flowery that fits in with uh, the paladin mythos and he was the only one to have anything like that other than the rogue uh, in the entire party and we started off with four people roughly (sighs) managing that situation would have been tough for anyone because the the lack of white roleplay, the lack of general combat, and it would have bent to a single individual's will. And when you're trying to run a team, if you're trying to manage something, you cannot only cater to one individual. You have to create a compromise among multiple individuals and yourself so that everyone can get the work that they need to get done done, but also to have uh, a level of understanding of the goal that you're all trying to get to. Now, everyone will have different goals, but you need to have at least one common goal. You need to have uh, goals that are more aligned. So, for example, uh, my paladin, his goal is to pretty much be a decent individual and to stop people from being uh, evil and bad to each other. If, say, we had a character that was only out for, I know, burning down the entire civilization and every single continent in the world, they would not get along very well. And in fact, that would create a very good antagonist for a lawful good party or a uh, good-leaning party within D&D to seek to destroy. You would not want to have that within a party dynamic. And you can have a large variation within a party but they have to be synergetic to an extent. I'm not going to put uh, the Joker and Batman on the same team because while that has happened in several cartoons, it's not a long-lasting alliance. And when you're trying to build a team, you need pretty long-lasting alliances. The other thing that you have to remember is that as creative creatures, humans will come up with something that you have not thought of. That's one of the reasons why I do not have very large plans when I walk into a, a gaming session. Uh, in the one of the most recent uh, sessions that I DM'd, the characters encountered this, this field of what in all intents and purposes were uh, ornamental crosses. And I had never planned anyone ever jumping up on top of one of these things. But the leader of our party, because he is the most influential and the most uh, high-born within it, says, you know what, I am going to hop up onto this giant crucifix-like thing and see what happens, because we're in a strange area. Obviously, this is what we should do. And so as a DM, I'm sitting there, it's like, ah, okay, what is going to happen when he jumps up on this thing? I didn't even expect anyone to actually like touch these things, let alone climb on them and see if they can reenact the quickening from Highlander on this. Oh my God. 
So I used it to create a bit of tension. Uh, I used it to introduce some things that were going to happen farther on, and I used them to guide them to an item that could guide to guide them in game to a particular direction or particular path that I want them to follow. So I started to lay the breadcrumbs out there. Okay, you start to you you feel deep in your mind this this pulsing voice tells you deep in the underground or something like that. And lo and behold, they eventually find the small kind of box that contains within it this necklace, this rosary bead kind of looking thing that's but much cooler than that. And inside once there's a couple of things that got distributed around the party, but the leader, he put on this necklace and the necklace itself allowed for him to be to an extent immune to illusion. And it also drew him towards this mine shaft uh, northeast of the position where they found the, the necklace itself. And so it gave them a rabbit chase. And one of my associates, when I was first starting to DM and start to try to figure out how to play a dungeon master or how to create a good game, he says, if my characters, if my players at all, spend five to ten minutes arguing and talking about anything, not, not going anywhere, I give them a rabbit to chase. By that, he meant that no matter where they were, something would happen. Armed gunmen. Uh a fight breaks out. Something to get and hold the player's attention in order to get them motivated to do something. And it's this very similar way with building a team. You have to get and hold their attention, whether that be assigning individual tasks, uh, putting out a new project, finding a better project for them all to work better on. It has to be enough for them to notice it. And it has to be intriguing enough for them to follow it. So for most people, uh, motivation is, I need money in the first world, otherwise I'm going to starve and I need to pay rent. So for that, you have to have uh, an amount of money, a decent amount of money, especially if you're hiring freelancers or just general people. Uh, for uh, a certain level of work, to get a certain level of effort out of them to get a suitable reward. Now, in D&D, this is illustrated in such things as treasure hordes, and you can have randomization of that from the Dungeons Master Guide, or if you can find an online loot generator that makes your job a hell of a lot easier, is very, very useful in that process. Now, a couple of my players have expressed that they want to have particular items to either enchant or to have a familiar in. This is particularly our wiz our elven wizard who wants to have a scimitar. It's like, okay, well, he wants a scimitar. He, if he's going to infuse his familiar into it, I should give him something that he's not going to immediately drop once he's past level two. So I, so I planned out, and I'm going to be giving him this very nice... Uh, kind of enchanted scimitar, uh, strong enough so that he'll be able to hang on to it for at least two to three levels up until about level four, but still not 
useless enough so that it is immediately dropped by the wayside and he has to enchant another scimitar or sword to transfer his familiar over to. And so there's this strange dynamic within the party that I'm guiding. We have one that's, uh, I'm going to call him a strength wizard. He's not necessarily going to be, oh, I'm casting fireball, I'm casting magic missile. He's going to be up in the front lines. He's going to be a blade singer, which is kind of like uh, Zoro meets magical classes. He's going to be using swords more and stuff that in that imbue into that weapon rather than he's going to be creating attacks through the magic that he's been given. On the complete opposite end of the spectrum, I have a warlock who is packed of the tome, which means he's going to be doing mostly magical attacks and possibly some melee attacks with some of the, the items that he has. But his main ability is going to be spell casting rather than using spell casting to boost his own uh, up close and personal skills. And lastly, we have, somewhere in between, we have a druid. And now this druid is a lizard folk, and he's pretty much there as he wants to play a tank. And so he's going to be doing mostly uh, wild shaping into things, most likely into combat, in order to take the greatest advantage of him being able to turn into other armored animals with his uh, lizard-like skin, but yet still being able to deal damage. In that process, he's not going to be using a lot of metal equipment or anything like that. So I'm not going to be getting or dangling in front of the druid a lot of material gains such as money or uh, like iron or steel weapons. He's going to be mostly earthly uh, natural equipment and things that can easily mesh with his um, wild-shaped form. Instead, I should be more focusing in on giving him things like, oh, something that helps him commune with nature better, something that helps benefit the area, or something that's going to boost his natural-based magics more than they are going to be a full suit of armor. Which, oddly enough, brings me back to my other campaign. We had to strengthen up our druid with getting him more natural-based armor rather than all the armor that we had available to us. And so the motivation for part of what we were doing was, okay, we have to make our druid a little tougher. We have to make him so that he's not immediately downed in any conflict that we come into. Going back to the one that I was running... I also have a fighter. I have to be able to find equipment for him that's going to make him a bit better in fighting things, okay? Give him some armor. Give him a sword. Give him stuff that's going to play into his character drive, which is he wants to be the best fighter there is, but without using magic. It's like, okay. Magical items? Possibly. Without boosting, without using like spells on him and dipping into things like multi-classing with spellcaster classes. Fantastic. We're going to have to give him more uh, rare items that are treated like magical items, but are not necessarily inherently magical. So things like mithril or vorpal or other weapons like that, or things that just have an enchantment cast into them to improve them rather than, okay, I have uh, this thing that summons, that summons uh, a severe earthquake every time I draw it and I can use it to channel these earth waves at them. It's like, okay, 
he's not going to be using that. He's going to be up close and personal or using maybe something like a gun or a crossbow. And so I have to, cha- I have to channel some of the random loot towards him, and I also have to channel some of the random loot towards the others. <laughs> so I have to manage what I need to motivate them. Okay. This goes into, all right, what does each class need? The Warlock needs technically more spells, but he also needs something to be able to defend himself close up. All right, well, he has the background of he's chosen by a particular celestial patron, and he himself has celestial blood in him because he has an Asimar. All right, so maybe a more angelic weapon or something that's good against uh, devils and demons and undead. So, all right, we give him a radiant hammer. All right, so we have this wizard. Okay, he likes scimitars. He's he's just getting into being a blade singer. Okay, what else are we going to be doing? All right, as that, he's going to need lighter armor, better swords, and things that are going to help him improve his abilities. All right, figure that one out. Uh, druid, natural-based things. Maybe not necessarily money because he's not interested in that. Okay, armor and tools. All right. And since he was snacking on some goblin fingers, maybe some meat. We have to figure out what you have to figure out what motivates each individual in your team. You have to motivate them. You have to allow for them to be able to be expressive and creative because you're just one individual. You are literally there to guide their decisions and guide their actions rather than to control them. Now, there's a very important difference between guiding and controlling. Okay, so controlling is like I pick up my phone, I pick up my uh, pocket knife, I pick up anything, and I have direct control over it. All right? You go anywhere you want on the phone, you, you cut what you need to, you prepare food, you do something that's you interacting directly with it. Now, guiding is... You kind of interact with it, and you shape how it behaves or what it does. You don't immediately just say, okay, you absolutely have to do X, Y, Z. So instead of saying, oh, you can't hop on that weird cross thing that I happen to put in here uh, in this game, like in... You can't do that. No, it's okay. You can do that. Now I have to figure out what are the consequences of doing that that people are going to do things that you do not expect or are completely random. So you can get kind of a feel of what somebody's going to be doing, but you don't know absolutely what they're going to do. And you have to allow for that level of randomness to leak in. Well, we can learn to determine what people are most likely going to do. We are not sure until they actually do it. So while people say, oh, that's profiling, it actually is. You have to be able to see patterns that people do. Okay. Well, Bob always comes over here to get a donut at 9.30. All right. Suddenly the pattern's broken. Something has happened to Bob in order to cause him to break his pattern. If we recognize that, if we recognize that pattern is being broken, we can start to look for problems. If we want to somehow use that pattern to our advantage, well, we start to use it. And we have to guide, maybe we don't want Bob to eat uh, a donut at 9.30 every day. 
doesn't matter if it's in the morning, it's night. Maybe Bob needs to cut back. Okay, well, how about instead of just before 9.30, we invite Bob to, to eat something and we help him try out something like a salad bar. I don't know. Maybe instead we help him get him to go on a walk with us. Just these tiny little things that start to carefully shape and shift what Bob is doing and what your team is doing in order to get uh, a desired result. So while that sounds extremely nefarious, as a dungeon master and as like a project manager, you have to, you're literally there to help the people in your group succeed, right? Their success is to an extent your success because you're trying to get them to achieve something you've been assigned or that you have assigned to them. And the more efficiently they get, they achieve that, and the the higher the quality of output work they do is going to look really good at you and look really good on them. So it's the symbiotic relationship of, okay, I have a problem. My team is there to solve it. Okay, I need to bolster them and motivate them to an extent that they're going to put out a good product because we both need this. And you're not going to be, you shouldn't be micromanaging. You shouldn't be, especially as a DM, you shouldn't be playing their characters for them. That was the other problem that our ranger has, that he would just roll. And we were supposed to figure out what he did with the roll in order to succeed. And eventually led to his character being brutally killed off and his stuff distributed through the party and a lot of butthurt going around and that particular ranger leaving. And he hasn't been back in like a month or so. In order to avoid that, you have to have the same flow. Not necessarily the exact same individuals doing the exact same thing. You need to have them have a common goal, kind of a mutual understanding of what's expected, and a mutual need to succeed. For us, that can be quite an interesting scenario because... People like a lot of different things, and that's why we find little clicks within social groups. So if I find, well, Bob likes donuts, well, we motivate Bob with uh, donuts again. But then again, maybe we don't want Bob to eat donuts, so we have to find something that Bob values more than donuts. And for most people, that's going to be money because money can be used in a variety of manners. And that gets really dicey really quickly. So if you want higher work, you put the motivation and you put the uh, the reward higher. This is why uh, content farms usually have very low-paying individuals working in them because people are cheap. They don't want to pay a bunch of money to get a bunch of work. So they rather pay five people a dollar each in order to get a moderately passable script or a moderately passable uh, product and then sell it for 15 So they, they've tripled their profits, but they don't want to pay one individual $10 to do it right once without anything uh, to fix. They would prefer to have the $10. 
putting you have to put that aside as a team leader and you have to put that aside as uh, a group leader it's like okay what is the cost that i'm willing to pay in order to succeed obviously the the higher work that you're going to be getting the higher the sum you're going to have the higher the reward you're going to have to give them and rewards are different some people are fantastically motivated by praise some are only monetarily motivated. Some are more motivated by a combination of the two, and others uh, just want to climb the corporate ladder. All right, so, well, if you do this, you get a promotion. Well, if you do this, you get a raise. If you do this, you get both. And you have to figure out which your players or which of your team members are motivated by what. So what we have to figure out as a DM is mainly motivation. It's the same thing for management. Okay, We find that a lot of managers are really good at picking out people with skills that will help benefit the, the productive ability of the team. The managers themselves may be as dumb as a brick on producing anything, but they are very good at finding people and motivating them. So if you find someone like that, you put them over something to kind of motivate the group. You don't necessarily have them working. Their job is actually to work on the people and to work on motivating them to the highest degree of success that they can achieve. And that's his or her job as a manager. Similar to being a DM, similar to that you want to see the characters grow and thrive and become fully fledged out and have fantastic adventures and provide them with a good time. But what you can't do is you can't play all the characters. You can't be them for them. You have to allow them that room to grow. And you have to guide that growth to a thing that will help create the story and help flesh that out. And so it's this weird give and take every single game session. All right, well, they do this. They, I didn't expect that. Well, let's, let's roll this into something that's going to be better for us down the road. Okay, oh, that perfectly lines up with this one idea that I had for a, a subplot. Okay, well, we'll introduce that now because now is the perfect time for it to do because they've set it up for that themselves rather than me forcing them all the way over to this particular uh, subplot. And it's like, okay. What I do as a DM, and what people really should generally do as managers, is there needs to be hard points. Okay? A hard point in the line of success. These are places that need to be reached, and they need to be reached at some point, but they don't need to be reached the exact same way each and every time, and they cannot be reached by only one way. People will find multiple ways. You need to allow for the ways that you know exist and the ways that they will find to exist. And that is an important skill because point A to point B, yes, the easiest way is a straight line, but sometimes that straight line is blocked. Therefore, we have a myriad of other looping and curving lines that can be found, or sorry, curves, not lines. All these different paths that can be very intricate, very twisty, very straight, in some places very hard in others. Those paths will 
come out of A and eventually all merge at B. That's how I like having my stories. I much prefer to let the story develop in and of itself. I, I've set breadcrumbs to a particular line, but I've set them across multiple paths. And the, the characters may run off far away from the breadcrumbs, and they may come back in somewhere along the line. All right, that's fine. I, I'm not going to get upset about that because they need to rate the story. I'm just kind of shaping the story as to how they interact with it. I shape the world. I interact with the world as they interact with it. Because in Dungeons & Dragons, you're pretty much the artificial intelligence or the computer program that most people would have in a video game determining how things act and how things respond and through die roll instead of math very complex mathematical programming. And in that, there's much more possibility because it's your own creative intelligence that's really unlimited, being guided by die rolls and uh, possibilities. There's this kind of amusing post that gets shared around on Facebook in D&D groups. It's like, it says, oh, in the distance you see a warehouse. Oh, is that like a werewolf? Only it's a house? It is now, as you hurriedly write down the stats for something like that, instead of it just being a place where you store goods. Sometimes the instantaneous and uh, unthought-of path is the most fun, and it's the one that builds the story. And sometimes we fall into success that way because we're continually trying to grow and we're continually trying to figure out a very definite goal. But we have to find the path to that goal. And that's where innovation and things like that and human creativity really express themselves. It's like, okay, well, we've always done it this way. Well, why have we done it this way? Well, because it works. Okay, then fine. Well, we always know it's this way because this is what we've been told to. Is there a better way? We haven't looked. Okay, we look and see if there is a better way. This is the continual struggle of managers, employees, DMs, uh, player characters, and everyone on the planet. We have to be able to achieve a goal, but sometimes we have to do it in a way that's creative that we didn't intend on doing it. This is what comes with the territory, especially as a DM. You're going to have players who are just going to be completely weird, and they're going to be almost insane in their ability to solve problems effortlessly or make a simple problem harder and complex. You, as the DM and as a manager, just got to roll with the punches. Make the best out of a bad situation. Make the best out of a good situation. Okay? Just let it start to flow. That's what happens with creativity. And that's usually what happen, What I find happens when I play D&D or I lead D&D. Is that it gets the juices flowing and it gets it to the point that it's like, okay, yeah, let's do that. Oh, this is a perfect thing. Oh, I can change and modify this because this fits the situation a lot better. It stimulates your brain to an extent that you become more creative. Sorry, you want to unlock more of your creativity because you're actually exercising it. It's kind of like a muscle. It's like, okay, I can lift these things. I can lift 10 pounds. Okay. Separate that by six months and maybe only be able to lift five pounds easily. And then you train yourself up again. I can lift 10 pounds again or train yourself even more. I can lift 20 pounds. Yeah. This, this training and this 
feeling of how things go. It's like, no, no, we're not going to be doing that. Nope, nope, nope. 